Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 114 of Yogaland. Today I have one of my all-time favorite teachers back on the show, Sally Kempton, and we are going to talk about ego. I think this topic came up for me because I have been talking to Jason's teacher trainees about Instagram and just helping them to optimize their strategy and plan their calendar. And I've really just been trying to encourage them to put themselves out there. And by the way, shameless plug, if you're interested, I'm going to try to do this workshop online soon too. Let me know if you're interested. So as I was doing this encouraging talk, I of course started to think of the shadow sides of social media too, and and just how it can be really hard to how addictive it can be and how I find that when I'm feeling really addicted, it feels like my ego is addicted. Just just the sort of like basest, most in, instant gratification oriented part of me is addicted. So I went right to Sally because she has so much of the yoga tradition embedded in her being and in her intellect. And this conversation did not disappoint. I definitely have found that you know, we talk a lot about one way to grapple with the ego is to know that its tendency is to want to identify itself with roles, with achievement, with, you know, your job or your beauty or these things that are really fleeting. And that the yoga tradition suggests identifying with awareness. And I love this and I feel that I got to that place of identifying with awareness and accessing it and feeling like I was so much bigger than how I was identifying with myself through meditation. And I'm just really, really curious as to whether or not this makes sense to you and whether or not you feel it in your yoga asana practice. Obviously, you can feel it in your asana practice. It's just a lot harder for me. So I'm curious if you feel it in your asana practice or if you feel it have felt it more in meditation, which which practice has helped you to access that feeling. Hope that makes sense. So if you want to post something up on Instagram with the hashtag Instagram stories, I will look for it. One quick little promo for Jason. He's starting up the travel schedule again. He will be in McCall, Idaho, August 10th through 12th. He's heading to Washington, D.C., well, right outside of Washington, Willow Street Yoga, August 22nd through the 24th. That's his injury prevention module for teachers. And then he's also doing weekend workshops, August 25th and 26th in D.C. And then he will be back in San Francisco for his 200-hour teacher training with Laura Burkhart starting in September. Okay, enjoy this interview. I feel like, you know, and this is definitely the world that I live in, but but much of the world is being taken over by social media. And it's ironic that this that social media has spurred this conversation I'm having with you today because I actually talk to Jason students a lot about what I think that that there are many benefits to social media. And I've experienced them, you know, just with the podcast itself. Like that's how I advertise the podcast and it's free. And I've connected with like a lot of listeners and it's really sweet. And there are lots of wonderful things about it. But having said that, I just find it such a, to be so curious. And I guess I just, I just wanted to talk to you about it in terms of the health of our egos, because I think of it as like the part of me, I mean, obviously we need our ego for survival, it's part of our personality and it's part of how we 
you know, set boundaries and it's, it's how we follow through on our day-to-day life and our beliefs. But at the same time, I often think of it as like a needy child, you know, it need like it thrives on adulation and adoration and instant gratification. So, and those are all the things that those are sort of like the shadow sides to social media, right? It just feeds that so much, even if you are like a fairly healthy person. So that's why I'm interested in this topic just right now. And also I'm interested in it because I think it is, can be a little bit confusing well, it's taught different ways in, in the yogic teachings. And so I wanted to kind of ask you about that. So I guess as a starting place, I kind of shared what I, how I think of the ego in terms of a definition. I'm wondering, you know, how you define the ego and its purpose and then how you approach it from your perspective in yoga. Okay. First of all, I, I agree with you that in the yogic definition of ego, which is the one I basically subscribe to is that the ego is obviously an extremely significant part of our psychic mechanism, our psychic instrument, if for no other reason than it keeps us from, you know, believing that what Joe says is coming out of our mouth. Yeah. So, you know, ego helps keep boundaries. It helps. It actually is really good for self-preservation. Hmm. There's a story, this is like a wild story, but it's, it's what's coming to mind, so I'll share it. That, you know, the great Saint Ramakrishna we used to go into these very intense samadhi states, states of deep meditation, and he, he would worry that he, he wouldn't come out of it, that he would just you know stay there and leave his body. So he would seed into his mind a particular physical desire that his, you know, for his own ego gratification that would bring him out of meditation, which might be something very simple, like I want to eat this, or I want to finish that conversation, or I want to smoke a pipe. You know, his theory is that that we actually need our sense of individuality in order to go on walking around and living our lives and doing anything for ourselves. You know, if we didn't have ego, right, we, you know, we just, we'd be without spine, so to speak. The ego provides, you know, not only boundaries, but also can be the reason that we are, do good things, you mm. know was the reason we do bad things. So it's kind of a neutral, the ego, you know, you know, and like everything, you know, it's like, we need it. So, so then the question is, how do we hold, you know, that mechanism that says this is me and that's not, you know, or this is good for me and that's not, how do we hold it in a way that's healthy and doesn't run over other people and actually takes us in a positive direction? So I would say part of what I think you're talking about is, you know, what what we could call, you know, for want of a better word, negative ego, right? Yeah. Or the painful suffering creation ego. And of course, you know, we tend to believe in our society that people with big egos are loud and confident, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, right, people with big egos are, you know, scared and narcissistic and feel bad about themselves and have to get validation constantly from outside. And I think that's the thing. That's the part of us that social media can feed, especially when we grow up with it from such an early age. Right. Yeah. I'll just interject quickly. Like when I speak to students about social media, I feel like I get the most feedback that they really, that it really makes them feel bad from the younger students. And I think that's because it is like such a part and parcel of their life and that 
a lot of them hasn't developed yet. You know, even in young adulthood, you're still developing and growing and kind of solidifying yourself. And so I feel like especially in your 20s. And so, yeah, it, it's an added pressure. And it feels like sometimes it feels like a burden. And I, and as I look at my daughter and think, you know, she's not exposed to it yet, but she's going to be. How do we handle that? I don't interact with a lot of preteens and, you know, uh, what do you call them? Tweens. Uh-huh. But the younger kids I know are totally, uh, you know, are getting into social media at about the age of eight, mm. unless they go to a Montessori school where they don't have <laughs> music. You know? Right, right, right. And let's face it, <laughs> we can't always send our kids to Montessori schools. This is the question, and I don't know how to answer it because I I don't have enough experience with that demographic. But it seems to me that that part of what we could do or what we can do or what we need to do is to begin to create a, a, an understanding of what kind of social media posts actually make us feel bad. Mm-hmm. Try to avoid them, you know, like try to change our language, especially girls, mm-hmm. I think, can do this. I don't, you know, I, I think the, the sense of humor of the young masculine has a, you know, easier time dealing with aggression, perhaps, than, than girls do. Right. As a 12-year-old was subject to a major mean girl's attack when I was in the seventh grade, I would say it scarred me for years. Yeah. You know, as you know, those things are really, really, really painful. So now we can do it on social media. Right. And that means that means people don't even have to be our friends you know, mm-hmm. to hurt us and make us feel betrayed. So what kind of training do kids need? to be able to resist it. And a lot of it has to do with, with the, the messages that they get, you know, or that they're able to find for themselves about other sources of self-worth. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think the other thing like that concerns me for younger people is that the role models that they're looking up to, well, first of all, the standards of beauty become so warped and you know, I worry about like the constant exposure to unrealistic ideals for, for girls. At the same time, I mean, just as you were talking, I remembered a conversation I had with Jason recently where he said, I always try to tell people that social media is a form of media, just like TV, just like movies, just like any of those things. And so you can turn it off. And right. so maybe educating people that even though it is person to person, which is different than TV, right? It, that was like a network and you know, apparently that might be going away, but even though it's person to person, it's still a form of media. It's still not absolute reality. Absolutely. And I think that, that people, we do have to have some form of Sabbath for social media. Hmm. That itself might even help. As I think about it, I think, so what resources do we have for transforming our attitudes? And I do think one of them is that there is now so much attention being paid through the problems that social media causes. And, and it's being paid not because adults, you know, are trying to impose standards on young people. It's because kids themselves are complaining about it, right? Right, right, right. And I find this generation is unbelievably conscious. I mean, more conscious, really, than any generation I've seen, including mine. Hmm. They are so savvy, I know, about emotional issues. I think it would be really interesting to do a kind of yogic training about how to look at social media 
to understanding Jason's point that it's just media, you know, that it's it's something that's happening in the virtual world, and to to begin to discover your own strategy for interacting safely on social media. I think people need to develop skills, you know, like like not to put your you know you know those old pictures of the coconut and you know you throw the coconut at somebody's face. So many people on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook just it's like they put their head in the hole so that people can can throw coconuts at it. <laughs> I think it's really important that we we learn to under, to mediate our impulses towards sharing things that are first of all going to get us ridiculed and secondly that are that are going to you know cause problems for us later and somehow use our social media accounts really to interact with with you know our buddies and our mm-hmm. and and not this this so-called you know this big public that makes us feel like we could be Beyonce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. As long as as people are making reputations for themselves on Instagram and YouTube and succeeding at it, other people are going to want to do it, right? So, so then if if that's what you're if that's how you want to roll, then you actually need to understand, you know, that there are, I don't want to use the word rules, but there are skill sets mm-hmm. that you shouldn't, you just should not enter this game without mastering some of the skill sets. And one of them, one of the skill sets that you need if you're going to be a public person is an ability not to be completely emotionally overturned by criticism. Mm. You have to have a goal. So in other words, you have to know that you're posting for a particular reason that people might criticize you, but because your goal is not simply to get people to like you, <laughs> your goal is is to make a point or to stand up for something. You know what I mean? Or to yes, completely. Something. Yeah, then then it's a whole different story. Yeah, I mean, I've posted about my past experience with depression a couple times on couple times on social media because I've done related podcasts, and I've been, you know, people have said to me, like, it was so courageous of you. And I, I appreciate that feedback, but it's funny. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel courageous of me to talk about it on social media because the reason I'm doing it is to help other people. And so, and that's the reason I ever started writing in my whole life in the first place was just to share stories because growing up for me, the way that I learned best was by learning someone else's personal story or hearing about someone who had been through something like that's just how I related best to the world. So for me, it feels like a really natural extension of what I've always been doing. And I think that's why I don't have like a lot of discomfort around it, but I do notice just get like circling back. I do notice my addiction to it. I notice, I notice just that zap of instant gratification slash validation. And yeah, just like kind of going back to thinking about the ego, I guess I want to talk about how to help people understand, you know, use yoga to like understand how to have a healthy ego and how to keep it in check as well, you know? Yeah. So I I think a couple of things. I love what you said about doing about posting about on social media to help people. 
because I actually feel that that attitude, certainly for me as a teacher and writer, that this understanding that your goal is to serve others and that therefore you choose what you say Mm -hmm. um, with that in mind. And I think that's a big deal. You know, it's, it's very different writing with the, with the goal of what will serve others, you know, what will help others in their evolution than with the goal of how can I say this in the coolest, cutest, most shocking, interesting way, which is not to say it's not great to say it in an interesting way. That is one of the, I would say, best ways to keep the ego in check, to just keep asking how does, you know, does this serve? Am mm. I serving? Right? And, and then to take the feedback that you receive this is the other thing, and now I'm talking about things that have helped me. There's this one sentence that I started saying to myself in my late 20s, and it was this, I'm in training, I'm learning. I'm in training, I'm learning. Mm. And, so, and so when I messed up, you know, when I made mistakes, which was and continues to be often, I find that if I remember, okay, I'm, I'm on this earth plane to learn how to live, Hmm. I just made a mistake. And the only mistake I could make right now would be to beat myself up about it. And instead, what I'm going to do is, is ask myself, okay, so what did I learn from this mistake? And that really changed my uh, low self-esteem issue. And I would also say in terms of keeping the ego in check, you know, one of the ways we can tell that our ego is, is in full uh, self-destructive, you know, f- mode is when somebody accuses us of something that we didn't do or, or makes an assumption about us that we think isn't true. And there's this little voice that, that speaks up and says, no, that's not true. That's not me. <laughs> you know, you know I, it, that self-justifying voice or that, you know, you misunderstood me voice is part of what ego does. And so one of the ways we can learn to see when we're identified, when we're ego identified, is by the emotion that comes up when we're falsely accused or misunderstood or when something unfair happens. Hmm. So what I was thinking when you were saying that is just to kind of talk through it a little bit. So it's like those moments where you're feeling really defensive or like you said, misunderstood. If your ego is sort of at the helm it's like your sense of self feels threatened. Right. Your sense of identity feels threatened. Right, right, right. You're, because you're identifying with that particular aspect. You know, for instance, if somebody says, you know, you're a terrible, you know, baseball player, I'm going to say, and whatever, because I <laughs> I'm a terrible baseball player. Right. If someone says, I'm a, and I'm not identified with being a baseball player, but if someone says you're a terrible writer, that hurts me mm-hmm. because, I, because my ego is identified with being a writer. And there, here's the way, if you don't mind my self-aggrandizing for a minute, one of the ways that I know that my, my practice, you know, I'm, I'm letting go of the ego has borne fruit to some extent is that although people still do accuse me of being a terrible writer, <laughs> I, that's crazy, by the I, way. Well, it's just, you know, how life is. But I've learned how to take it with a grain of salt, which is, a, which is something that one develops at, at, with inner work. You know, you, can, you're, you actually find a way to say, okay, this person thinks I'm not good at the thing I'm 
you know, not good at my job, not good at my, not good as a parent. This person doesn't like me, you know, all those things. And you can start to say to yourself, okay, sometimes using Byron Katie's questions, which are, I think, really helpful. Is that really true? Mm -hmm. Is that really, really true? And then if you remember her next question is, and who would I be if I didn't believe this idea? Who would I be if I didn't believe this? And those, just doing a little inquiry with your emotional reactions to things will help show you some of the ways in which our ego you know, messes with us. You know, it's, I mean, if, if the person who says you're terrible at your job happens to be your boss, that's a problem. Right. right. It's a logistical problem. It's yeah. a logistical problem that might affect your life. If someone who has no real effect on your, you know, your choices in life, or, you know, for instance, someone on your social media feed critiques you, it probably doesn't have an effect on your life. Right. right? So you can dismiss it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I would love to know, I would love to unpack this a little bit because you mentioned, you know, having done this inner work and spiritual work for a long time has made it easier. Yeah. I love if you could just explain what that f- f- process is, what that f- inner feeling process is. If someone did who you, who you respected and said, they just really didn't like something that you recently wrote. What do you think is the difference now versus let's say like in your twenties with being able to manage that more easily? The big difference is that when I was in my twenties, Every time I failed, I would feel, okay, that's it. Hmm. And I'll never do this again. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I am a failure. Now, when somebody critiques something I've done, I listen and I often, uh, I often learn something, Hmm. you know, so because I, I really don't believe that I am a writer. The thing that has made the, the difference is, is really identifying with awareness or identifying with with love in the heart. In other words, identifying with something in yourself and awareness, you know, the awareness that is present to your thoughts and your experience. Awareness is, is an aspect of yourself that once you've discovered it, once you have a felt sense of it, it's always present. You know, so when you're having a, you're having a bad time, when your ego is smarting, is really hurting, uh, which is a, a very normal human experience, I would never critique anybody for having, you know, having suffering because they've been rejected or disapproved of. But if you have learned to identify with awareness as your deepest self, then you have an automatic perspective. You know, okay, this is a part of me, a part of my life that isn't working right now, but it doesn't impact who I really am, which is awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, taking that perspective, if you do it intelligently, you know, not using it as an excuse for not dealing with your issues in daily life, identifying that way, learning to identify that way, coming back to it again and again, not only helps you stay a little bit immune to the slings and arrows of other people's, you know, meanness, but it it also gives you access to the the resource that awareness is because your awareness is so much smarter than your ego, so much smarter than your mind, so much smarter than anybody else's mind, right? When you really know that you are awareness, that you are awareness, you actually can tune into your own awareness and ask the question, okay, what's, what's the right thing for me to say or do now? And you'll get a 
an answer that comes from someplace so much more intelligent than than your ordinary self that it's stunning and and this very practice of okay i am i am awareness okay awareness can you give me a sort of a spontaneous way of dealing with this situation that my limited self is in and then practice following the intuition that emerges you're going to have you know you you will have begun to train yourself to move through the seams of reality with a much deeper skill than if you're relying on you know your self-identified ego yeah yeah that was so well said and so much there i i read something before this interview that said your ego it's kind of like when you over-identify with your ego it's kind of like putting on a pair of glasses and thinking that you're the glasses beautiful yeah it's kind of like it's yeah and 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 so I guess I I finding it so interesting right now I've never quite thought of it this way that we kind of if if we even have awareness of the awareness right like I mean I feel like before I came to yoga I didn't even have that and then once it kind of turns on ignites you just have access to it you doesn't really it doesn't go away it's this lovely thing but it's almost like do you feel like it's almost like we're toggling in yeah. life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, there is a point and, you know, and when you're, I mean, if you think about when you're having a really good day or you're in the zone, you know, when you're, you're moving effortlessly from one thing to another without that part of you that's going, I don't want to do this, or maybe I won't make the bus, you know, that when you're in a sort of spontaneous flow, mm-hmm. then you have a moment of realizing what it is to be guided by that, that deep intelligence. And, but most of the rest of the time we are toggling, you know, you're like, you're trying to, you're trying to take care of your responsibilities. Your yeah. And you are writing that story and submitting it on time because you are a writer and you need to get paid because you need to survive and like, all, yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and you need to get along with the people around you and you need to compromise and know when not to compromise. I mean, there's, you know, a million, you know, issues that come up in life that actually we need, we need what we would call healthy ego boundaries to navigate, right? I mean, it's really important to know, to, to be able to discern, for instance, between what's my stuff and what's another person's stuff, right? Because if it's your stuff, then you need to do emotional work. If it's the other person's stuff, you need to go, you know, as we sometimes say in, in my Indian-based tradition, we need to go swaha, let it go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But most, most of the time, because, so, because we, we tend to be so codependent, you know, our whole culture is so codependent, we tend to not be able to tell the difference, you know, between what's our emotional charge and what somebody else's emotional charge that's being projected onto us. So, so just learning to get a felt sense of how it feels inside your body when feelings are hurt or when, or when your ego is doing one of its numbers, that's really, really important. Instead of just going from trigger to trigger, right, which I feel like I did for so much of my early life, like I was always such a thinker and like just, yeah, it felt like trigger to trigger and rumination to rumination. Yeah, yeah. And also one of the things that meditation and yoga do for us is is increase our ability to stay with uncomfortable feelings, right? Because 
I mean, you, you can't really meditate seriously over time without confronting a lot of uncomfortable feelings. And the same is true in asana practice. So, so and, and again, I think you would agree that some of the internal muscles we develop in, if we really pursue our yogic practice seriously, is the, is the ability to actually remain with something that we don't understand or that is confusing or that is painful and to discern the difference between the pain of growth and the pain that means that we're being injured. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much discernment gets taught to us you know, if we really do, if we really do our practice in it, of course it translates into daily life. So for someone who is just starting out, what is a good practice for, you know, developing that awareness of awareness? Well, the, the great classic practice, and it's the one I come back to again and again, is to ask yourself, okay, what is it that knows I'm having this feeling? You know, and, and then tuning into the, to the other part of your inner world of your inner consciousness you know there's a part of you that's feeling the emotion and then there's a part of you that's watching it that knows it's happening mm-hmm. if you keep asking that question okay what knows what knows i'm having this feeling and then identifying with that if even for a fraction of a second it's going to change the perspective your perspective on your emotions another thing that that i find really works aside from those byron katie questions which i think are genius you know, is this really true? What makes me think it's really true? Is it always true? Or what would my experience be if I wasn't having this emotion? Sometimes just reminding yourself that you would feel a lot better if you could let go of a thought or if you could let go of a feeling. Sometimes that alone is enough. Right, 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 right. That actually leads me back to what I was just trying to to dig up, you know, which is the concept of non-attachment, which I think is another concept in yoga that we misunderstand and that, you know, we feel, I feel like it gets subverted a lot into people, you know, expecting yogis to just be able to let go so easily and not be attached to things and, you know, not even have emotions almost, or, or in, people can put that pressure on themselves. And yeah, I guess the way that I think about it is like, and I'm just wondering what you think is you can't, just let go of something until you know there's something to let go into. And that's that foundation of awareness that you're talking about. Like once you know that you are more than just your quirks and your personality and the size of your nose and like the size of your thighs and your wrinkles and all of those things and your intellect, once you know that you're more than those, uh, that you're more than those things, it, the practice of letting something go can feel more grounded and more supported and safer. And (laughs) like, it just makes more sense. It does. And 
I also think we need to have had a couple of positive experiences of having let something go and having just feeling more relaxed, more at peace, mm. love. You know, I mean, if you if your only experiences of letting go have been of having something that you really cared about wrested away from you by a stronger force and don't haven't had any positive experience of that or or haven't known how to look for the positive experience because often that's the issue then you you know then it's very hard to let go because you only see the downside right you feel like you're you feel like you're losing mm-hmm. and i do think that that there really is no substitute for for self inquiry you know for for instance in a moment when letting go happens and i'm just thinking of starting in childhood right you I just saw, I was just traveling with a kid on a plane and we watched the boss baby, which uh, you might've seen. <laughs> it's actually very cute cartoon music. Uh, Sophie does watch that. It's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. hilarious. And it's all about what happens when you get a baby brother or sister and how the, you know, the baby takes away all the att- all your parents' attention. So And this is a big thing. I mean, speaking as someone who had a younger brother born when I was you know, too young to realize that it was, you know, that I was not being cut out of the family. So learning to let go is something that I think we may or may not develop positively in childhood. And if we've had a lot of difficult experiences of letting go and having it be a big loss, we might have to train ourselves by, you know, actually testing out situations in which letting go can lead to something positive. And I'm thinking of, of one example that everyone has, I think. When you get a bad cold and you have to stay in bed and you have to miss something that you wanted to do, that's, you, know, you, can, you can practice letting go in that situation and then feel what's good about letting go and then start to experience the felt sense of, of how letting go can be a relief. Hmm. And... You know, the other side of it, which we also need to mention, is that, you know, some people, yogi, some yogis are so addicted to letting go that we'll just let go of everything. Totally. <laughs> yes. And then I, a friend of mine wrote a play called Zen Boyfriends about, you know, guys who are just, when you suggest that the relationship might go better, if they spent more time with you, they would they say, whatever, you know, right. I'm totally detached from this relationship. <laughs> so... So that's not the way to go either. Right. (laughs) And that is like sometimes a common pendulum swing that, you know, people come back from. But yeah, that's like the gross misinterpretation of of letting go. Well, you know, T.S. Eliot's great statement, teach me to care and not to care. It's pretty much it. You know, like, how do we how do we really give our fullness and then let it go? I mean, that's. That's the koan of human life, right? Totally. I th- I think also for me, like letting go, if it's not supported in some way, it can feel like I'm faking it. And, you know, there is that expression, fake it till you make it. And there are situations where fake it till you make it, I think is not a bad idea. But it can be so incredibly painful to fake something only to have it come up again in some other way. Right. Right. Well, to think, well, like to think you've let it go, to convince yourself you've let it go to, and really you've just kind of like stuffed it down <laughs> and it's going to come out in some other way. 
You mean that particular incident? Yeah. Uh, I, I think the thing is, the thing that makes it complicated, of course, is that when something has charge for you, for me, for all beings, it's almost always because it's triggering something quite old. Mm. And if you can't find the thing that's being triggered, then it's very hard to pluck it out. It's very hard to let go of it because you you can't let go of the root. You know, you're letting go of one of the twigs. So, so you're absolutely right that fake fake it till you make it. Letting go, where you, which can turn into okay, it's okay with me if you know you go out with twenty other women, right? We're dating, but it really isn't. <laughs> and and one day the you know the full horror of what you're allowing and your you know your true emotional response is going to come up in a huge blow up or blowout. It's again a question of knowing what are appropriate boundaries and knowing what situations you are worth giving into and what situations you have to take a stand on, you know. Yeah. That's a life skill. You don't most of us have to learn it. What was that phrase you used to say in your twenties? I'm practicing or I'm in training. I'm in training. I'm in yeah. training. That is so good. I like that a lot. Another thing that came up for me while we were talking that helped me long ago start to think about the ego differently was just the phrase in success or failure, I am the same. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know if that's like a well-known phrase in Buddhism or, but just that idea that, I mean, first of all, so for someone who's a perfectionist or like super achievement oriented, I actually see this in my daughter. It's like, if you are afraid of failure, you won't even try yeah. So it's helpful on that level in success or failure. I'm the same. And then it's helpful if you failed. And then it's helpful if you're successful too, in just kind of yes. having that steady hum behind all of the, the parts of your ego that are in the material world. That is great. That's brilliant. And what I've noticed is that you have to do it in success as well. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think for many of us, at least this is my experience, I can live with success. <laughs> I mean, I've learned, I've learned not to keep patting myself on the back, you know, 40 times. Oh my God, you gave such a good class. Oh, you're so good. Oh, isn't that great? <laughs> I, but I have, I have historically had a really hard time letting go of failure. And I, in that book, Buddha's brain, they say that there's a wonderful phrase, uh, we're Teflon for positive experiences. And, yep. Right? And Velcro yep. for negative. So, so our failures you know, loom so large in us that, that, and I actually think that finding a way to assimilate failure without, you know, just stuffing it somewhere where it becomes part of our backpack and, you know, comes up as a fear Mm -hmm. next time we take a risk. Learning how to assimilate our failures is, is I think one of the most important aspects of, you know, healthy ego. I mean, one of the yogic techniques for assimilating failure that again, I, I think is really helpful is to actually offer it, you know, to say, okay, here's a situation I, I, I didn't do as well as I wanted to, or I did my best and it didn't work out. You actually imagine it, imagine it as an object in your hands and just make a gesture of offering with your open hands, offer it to the universe, offer it to goddess, you know, offer it to the eternal teacher but actually make it, make it an offering. And again, it's, it's one of those yogic techniques that you don't, 
You don't see why offering your failures would work to free you from the sense of failure, but it really does. I bet it does. That sounds so nice. <laughs> it sounds so nice. <laughs> yeah, because when let's when we think about it, like when you failed, presumably you've then taken all the steps you can take to make sure that hasn't happened again. But like you said, you still have, there's probably still some emotion lodged in there or just energy, like just like that negative stagnant energy lodged in there. So that's just like a nice energetic thing you can do with that. You know, I I would add one more thing, Andrea, which, I mean, many of us are motivated to be better people by our ego. Hmm. You know, in other words, you, you want to think of yourself as somebody who's kind. And uh-huh. so, so you behave kindly, even when you, you know, even when you don't feel like it. So, and in the same way, you want to consider yourself a person, you know, who helps people who need help. You go out of your way, even when it's inconvenient. And it's not a pure compassionate impulse or a pure impulse of kindness. It has to do with how you hold yourself, you know, how you want to be, hmm. which is an which is often, you know, an egoic position. So, and yet, to me, using your ego to inspire you to be a better person or to inspire you to, you know, to to make a little extra effort in your, you know, in your work life, to spend more time with your kids because you want to see yourself as a good parent. I mean, those are ways in which we can use the ego to sort of improve the world around us, Mm. you know. You know, one way to understand the ego is how can we use it positively? That's so great. Yeah, I appreciate that so much. I don't think that's I've ever heard it talked about in that way. And of course, it makes total sense. Like we sometimes we behave politely because it reflects well on our ego, you know, it like it reflects well on us. And so that's not such a bad thing all the time. No, actually, it's it's how we maintain a civilized society. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So that goes back to what you said in the very beginning, which is like, it's part of our self-preservation. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Sally. This time just flew by, but it was just incredibly helpful. And you know, I could always talk to you about these things all day. So thanks for, thanks for talking to me. My pleasure, Andrea. And I love your work. So may, may it continue to (laughs) unfold. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I will put show notes, including a link to a yoga journal piece that Sally did about ego years ago on the show notes page at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 114. Thanks for listening and enjoy your practice. Mm -hmm.